Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. Today, we're going to talk about the challenges we face as surgeons at all levels of training. Um, you know, when we make the transition from foundation to core training, core training to specialty training, and eventually into the, the holy land that is consultancy. So today, we've got Jamie Russell as the voice of core trainees. Very lofty mantle there you've got to contend with, Jamie. Anurada Venagopal. Who is a brand new ST3 in vascular and then James Forsyth who's a relatively recently appointed consultant in vascular surgery so um, morning Jamie tell me a little bit more about you so as you mentioned I'm a core trainee I initially studied in Plymouth and then I went to uh, foundation training in Southampton and then straight from there I started uh, core training up in the northwest so I'm currently a CT2 working in Warrington on breast surgery so as you know I'm, I'm also a member of the uh, MAC committee so that's how I've become involved in these podcasts and looking forward to to helping you host these over the next few months. All right, fine, fine. I mean, it seems like you've made a fairly quick transition from foundation to core training, which I know it can seem like a fairly substantial step up. So is there anything you wish you'd known before you started core training? So I think definitely I wish I'd thought more about the expectations of being a core trainee. Really, whenever I, when I was applying and going into it, all I was interested in was whether I was going to get into it or not, because it's very competitive. And certainly over the last few years, it's become more competitive. So when you know, you, you start looking at the person's specification and what, what the, the wants from their core trainees, I was more interested in, in whether I'd actually get the position than whether I'd actually, you know, do a good job as a core trainee. Um, I didn't really think that far ahead. So I think... Knowing what was expected of me as a core trainee would have been something that I, I would have helped me, certainly in, in, in terms of stepping up. I remember, my, you know, the first few weeks, it sort of quickly became apparent um, to me that the responsibilities of core training were much higher than I thought. Um, I think I initially thought that it wouldn't be too much of a step up uh, because I was still an SHO, although I was becoming, you know, uh, I had more training uh, opportunities. I thought that it'd be very similar to what I was doing as an F2. But actually, the thing that I think no one really sits you down and explains to you is that you go from foundation training, where essentially you're turning up to the hospital and you, you just need to do the job. The training side of it, you will learn by doing that job. Whereas when you go to core training, you know you've, you, there are additional things that you need to to be responsible for especially in terms of your own training you know things like going to theater going to clinics which aren't really as um big an expectation of you as you have to um i didn't really realize i think as you mentioned I, i've come straight from 
foundation training, I think that was quite a big jump. And I think a lot of trainees these days, especially take an F3 or an F4, and um, it's almost becoming the norm now. And I think that certainly gives you a bit of an advantage if you've done an F3. You've got had an extra year, especially if you've gone and done a fellowship or something in a, in a surgical specialty. You know, it, it gives you more of a bridge for that step up. So I think it was it was particularly challenging coming straight from F2. Do you think that people taking an F3 and an F4 year out is for a quality of life thing more than an experiential thing? Only because when I decided I was going to do surgery, the advice that was given to me was, well, if you're going to do it, then commit to it. Don't go messing around in Australia for a year or don't do any of this. You're either going to do it or not, so then apply and go for it. Yeah, well, that was the advice given to me because I yeah. initially I wanted to do an F3. I wanted to actually go and do a, an anatomy um, teaching post because mm. um, I'd seen that as a really good way to prepare for your exams and, um, you know, sort of get into um, surgery. That way it was good on your CV as well. Um, but I was told by my um, seniors, no, 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 get, just get on with it. Go go, go straight through because, of course, they also um, – penalize you when it comes to st3 applications if you take an extra time out but i look back on that and i think there are advantages to both although you know it's great if you if you get straight through then um you know you're not taking any extra time you're you're getting on with the training so you know just making your way up the ladder but at the same time because i haven't had as much experience especially in things like theater you know a lot of the operations quite new to me still I'm not getting as much out of the training as it were. So I think if, you, if, if you're someone who goes and does an F3 and, and makes use of that time um, really well, then you'll probably get more out of core training, I think. That's just my opinion. So some days I sort of think back and think, I wish I'd done an F3 and really used that time to prepare the core training better. But I, I don't know whether I would have actually done that. I mean, you are a little bit, you're over halfway through core training. So... Is it what you expected it to be? And if not, why not? Um, I think mm, yes and no. Skillfully passed. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd certainly seen core trainees as an F1, F2. I'd, I'd encountered and talked to some core trainees um, about their experiences, but I hadn't really anticipated my own response to the sort of challenges that they were talking about. You know, they'd always complain about, difficulty of things like getting into theatre ARCPs and the portfolio commitments and things like that and I sort of thought because I was sort of relating it to my own experiences in a foundation doctor where you've got Horus and and which is relatively much more simple to use than than ISCP I didn't actually listen to um, them in terms of how challenging that would be so I I think it was it I, I sort of understood what core training about but i didn't quite appreciate how challenging some of the 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 stuff the new stuff um that you've got to go through is i think i think you're right actually it can seem quite unnatural because looking back at you know my career when you're a foundation doctor for the most part you do what you're told to do so you run a ward round you order these tests you do these bloods you write this paperwork you request these things and you get a little bit more autonomy when you're an F2, but then when you're a core trainee, you're kind of in limbo. You're not a foundation doctor. You're not on specialty training and you're in that awkward interface between the two. 
And you're right, there isn't anyone that tells you what you're meant to do and how to negotiate it. But then, you know, do you think that's part of actually transitioning from doctor and going towards surgeon? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's actually, the, the core training is, um, you know, a step in itself. I mean, you go from an F2 being told what to do to suddenly two years later being an ST3 um, and um, being much more independent. So that the, the learning curve of core training is, is quite steep actually. Um, and I think that, yeah, that, that would be something I wouldn't, I didn't really anticipate when you think about it, you've got two years to learn to be a surgeon, at least prepare yourself to, to be able to be trained as a registrar. And if I sort of looked at myself as an F2, I, I, I was um, really not prepared for that steep learning curve at all. It's something that I think you sort of underestimate when you're, when you're a junior trainee. What, what do you think are or were the biggest challenges about starting? I think one of the biggest ones, that, you know, you, you, is really sort of understanding how to get the training opportunities, you know, you're, you're told at the beginning, you've got to get this many operations, you've got to go to clinic, you've got to um, do these WPBAs and all this stuff. But actually understanding how you get those and how you incorporate training opportunities and seek out corporate um, training opportunities into your into your, gen- your practice, day-to-day practice, is really difficult. I think one of the things that I didn't appreciate at first was, you know, you're given a supervisor, whether that's clinical or educational supervisor, and you've got to really build a a working relationship with them because they're the ones who are going to give you the opportunities. They're the ones who are going to train you. And they're not necessarily going to just do that because they're your name supervisor on your portfolio. You've actually got to demonstrate that you're competent, demonstrate that you're enthusiastic. And that takes a lot of interpersonal skills. And, um, you know, you've got to sort of prove to them that you're, you're a trainee and that you're worth training. Uh, and I think that was one of the biggest challenges was going from uh, a foundation doctor who just does what they're told and hopes that they do it right to actually someone who's got to, you know, step up and, and demonstrate that um, they are um, competent, capable of, of training to be a surgeon. Some of what you've touched on still resonates with me. I mean, I have to look back retrospectively quite a while, but yeah, you've, you, in some ways, it's good to know that the experience hasn't changed that much. But in other ways, it's also bad to know that it's not changed that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose yeah, yeah. that's as diplomatic as I could be on that matter. <laughs> Fine. Well, thanks very much for your um, your kernels of wisdom about core training, James. Maybe it's time you get out of the hot seat. <laughs> Well, um, I think we're moving on now to Anu um, to talk about SC3 or start the step up from core training to SC3. Now, this is something I'm looking to do. So I'm hoping that you'll give me some nice positive answers and tell me that it's a really happy place. Just throw my cynical hat out of the window and be the optimist we all oh, want yeah, to yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so what, you started uh, SC3 this year, is that right? Yeah, uh, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. Oh, wow. You're really, you, you just stepped up. Just yeah. stepped up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I'll probably ask you similar questions to what Asad asked me. What, what, what is it that you um, 
wish you'd known about uh, stepping up to ST3 before before you'd done it. Is there anything that you'd tell yourself a few months back? No, uh, to answer this, is a little bit of background in the sense I am a new ST3, but I'm not a new registrar. I'm a nine-month-old registrar. So I uh, completed my core training December gone, so last year, and straight away slipped into this um, clinical fellow post in the same unit that I was in. It was everything that you need in order to start off or step up to the formal SD3 level, at least in my case. It was a, a in that situation, in that scenario, it was as cushioned a start as could be, uh, because A, I was in the unit that people knew me, uh, they knew where I was, they knew what I was capable of, and more importantly, what I wasn't. And so they always pushed me, but never pressured me, if that makes sense, because we all knew where we were, and they knew that I had this intention to carry on uh, in vascular, uh, hold my skills to becoming an SD3. I had only applied, so I hadn't got the job when I started. So as day one ST3, if I think I had a fairly good idea of the reality of an ST3 or, or reality of being a registrar. And all those, um, the teething problems uh, as we would face as a day one ST3, it was almost taken care of nine months ago. And so I dived in straight. So yesterday I was CT2. Today, I'm a senior clinical fellow um, at the level of an SD3. So there was some hand-holding, but equally, because there wasn't this formal pressure from the outside, as you've alluded to, of training being our responsibility and needing to check these boxes of ARCPs and audits and things like that, I could just focus on being a vascular registrar on doing clinics, uh, doing the on-calls efficiently, time managing, prioritizing, looking after juniors, the the dream job that we think we want without the pressures of having to sit in front of the ARCP panel. Mm. So so that's interesting. You've had almost like a grace period where you've been given the chance to just, uh, you know, focus on the stepping up. Um, would Would you recommend that to other training Absolutely. I 200% without a shadow of doubt recommend people to take time especially in the specialty of their choice I cannot imagine how anybody could make up and, and hats off to uh, the hundreds of those who make up their mind either in med school or over a foundation years. I mean, I knew I wanted to get into surgery always. I don't know why, um, but it wasn't that hard a choice for me. Which surgical specialty? There was a bit of uh, friction there because I initially started off with wanting to do max facts. But I credit everything to the fact that at every point I've had to make a crucial decision, I've actually been on that job. So I I did qualify in dentistry initially. I did uh, max facts SHO jobs for many years before going back into med school came out wanting to do MaxFats. And in fact, before applying to specialty training in MaxFats, did uh, another registrar job in MaxFats. And that's when found out this is not right for me. Not 
because of specialty, but because of various other reasons. And the reason I want to make that point is choosing a specialty is not just for the joy of operating in that specific area or being a specific surgeon. It has to um, fall in line with things that are going on in your life at that time, but also potentially changes that could come along. The more mature you are when you come to making that decision about choosing a specialty, you will look beyond just the adrenaline rush of a ruptured aorta or um, whatever else it may be that gives you an an adrenaline rush. So I know I haven't chosen a specialty because of those momentary rushes that we have. I know I've chosen a specialty, which is probably not the easiest to navigate, but equally I know this is something that my personality, um, you know, fits with and the specialty fits with my personality. So both ways. So, had I not done the registrar bit and gone in starry-eyed, maybe I would have been a very reluctant registrar today. Likewise, when I chose vascular, I fell in love with it within two weeks of starting vascular. And then as luck would have it, I went off on maternity leave. So I had a whole year away from medicine, surgery, anything to do with being a doctor, came back still wanting to do vascular and figured out how this could fit in with a busy out of work life it sounds like you've you know taken that time to make sure you've made the right decision in the specialty and moving you know how you're going to work it out um as as you you seem to talk about it very positively like it's it's it's, um you don't regret doing it is there anything though that you would have done differently I probably wouldn't attend dentistry first, but anyway, um, I now see dentistry as my passport to medicine. But I don't know if I would have done anything differently. Um, obviously, you get, you would have got the sense that I have taken my time. Um, you know, I'm the opposite of you, Jamie, where you've gone straight from F1 to to CT2 in like three years, four years. Um, I was SHO, then student, then F1, then come out, then CT2. You know, I've taken my time to navigate through things. I don't think I would have changed anything as as such. Uh, like I said, don't know about the value of dentistry now, but it's worked out all right. I, I think because of the time that I've taken, uh, I know the system better. I've actually seen quite a lot of transition that has happened in be it the way we are recruited, be it expectations of foundation years and CTs. If anything differently, because I've taken my time, when it's come to selecting jobs, let's say, I haven't been exposed as much to specialties other than what is needed, and I say needed in quotes, because I did general surgery as, as an F2, and then I did uh, a lot of general surgery during core training, because I thought, look, you know, with general surgery, we needed. So once I decided not max facts and I wanted to do vascular, I just wanted to do as much as I could that would help me in vascular training. So I didn't go away and do ET rotations, or maybe my exposure hasn't been as broad, but then when I finished my core training, I was quite confident as a core trainee in general surgery and then and therefore vascular. So that way, suddenly, if there, there are other specialties and if you're required to have some minimal working knowledge of those, I feel I'm, I'm a little out of depth there. So maybe 
Had I known uh, and I'd taken my time, I would have planned my jobs better. But looking back, there isn't, I mean, yeah, it's, it's the time that it's taken to get where I have to get to is longer than usual. But it isn't a regret as such. It's just, it's just what it's taken to get to where I have. And on the way, it's been a very fulfilling personal experience as well. So I really don't have much to complain about that. You've, of course, had um, nine months almost to make this step up. You probably identified what one of some of the main challenges of going from a core trainee to a to a, a, a registrar is. What what would you say is the stuff that stuck out in your mind as, as some of the most challenging aspects of that that stepping up? It's this need to prove yourself time and again and time and again and over and over again partly because you know we're all it's a given now that doctors move doctors change units um and so it partly the fact that you start off in a new unit which is not different for anybody i mean as foundation doctors, we started off every four months. But I think by the time you come to SD3, you've sort of done the move about eight times already, right? And then you've, you've gained some experience. You're raring to go. You want to go there, do the stuff, and be the registrar that you've always dreamt to be. And then somewhere, something holds you back. And then you're back to square one and needing to say, oh, yes, I can, I you know, whether it is proving to yourself or pre- proving to your colleagues or senior colleagues, that's the one thing that sticks out. But I suppose by that time you've developed enough resilience to say, well, you know, I've done this before, so I'm, I'm sure I can prove it to them. That's one thing. But I think the biggest revelation, I wouldn't call it a challenge, the revelation is, is this as glorified as you were told it was? That's the question for me. And I'm only three weeks into the job. Is it as glorious? Is it as wonderful as we all make it out to be? I have been a non-trainee. I am a trainee now. That's the question that comes to my mind. That is what I'm contending with personally at the moment. Asad has a big grin on his face. Um, He's mentored me through my uh, interviews. So he probably knows a little more to it. Um, The question that comes to me, even so early on in training, but not necessarily in the specialty itself, is, is this what you worked for? And in order to answer that devoid of emotions, I probably need a little more time, but it's not an absolute yes. That's what I found now. Okay. Training posts at one point in time were what they are made out to be today. And I think what people underestimate are that there are loads of opportunities and training pathways are one of those. But the, uh, the glory that's been attached to, to training posts, I think that's overestimated. That's, that's my very honest feeling. Why am I mentioning that now? is because when you start off in a mixed unit, the friction becomes apparent then. And, um, you know, it, it certainly influences the quality of your, of your work life, your personal life, and all of that. And it's important that we have that very honest conversation with ourselves. And then if it becomes a challenge, you try and see how you can overcome that challenge. Given... My position at the moment, where I'm sort of headed towards ST3 applications, but at the same time, 
as I've mentioned before, I, I feel like I've um, kind of rushed through it a little bit. Um, what would be your advice when I'm confronting that decision? You know, whether to do I apply for SD3? What happens if I don't get in? Um, what, are, what am I going to do having, you know, confronting that massive step in my career going from core trainee to SD3? What would be what would you suggest? I'm assuming when you're applying to SD3, you've obviously made your choice of specialty. The yeah. number of people I see who say, I'll apply to this and this and this. That's worrying when you apply to three very, I mean, we even had this very recently when you could do combined general surgery and vascular applications, and they just completely baffled me. If, if you're interested in both to equal degrees, and then you leave it to a play of luck to be chosen to either general surgery or vascular, I get it. But if you have not even made that choice, and therefore you leave it to a draw of luck to make that choice, that's dangerous. Because that means you probably haven't spent enough time in one or either of them. uh, And therefore, you don't mind which one you get. And I personally, I think general surgery and vascular surgery are two very different specialties. There's a reason why vascular is now treated as a separate specialty. Likewise, I have come across people who applied to ENT and one other thing and another thing. And you do know, so there has to be some clarity, some thought, some, you know, some honesty when you come to apply to, to, to these jobs. If in doubt, it's one year, it's one year, it's nine months before you can turn around. I haven't even started my job and I applied for this last year. And you're talking about applications again. It's that quick. If you haven't made your mind or if you like two specialties and you don't know which one, I would highly recommend you do a day job. You live it. I still don't understand how people have it all figured out and say, oh, my God, I'm going to lose time. There's no time lost except the time lost doing and stuck in a specialty you don't want to be in. There is this onus of the training job where, you know, when it's given to you after all the hard work you have put in, it's always given to you as a massive favor done on you. So it's, it's quite hard to then leave that pathway saying, oh, my God, I've got into a training specialty. You must be mental to be leaving this training specialty. So to leave a training pathway once you've gotten in is made difficult by so many other factors than the very few individual factors that are responsible for you to delay your training. By how long? A year, two years. And you rightly use the word that we are penalized. We are penalized for taking time out to figure out the right specialty so that we can do the right thing and be the best at at what we've chosen Trying to rush us after four months. I mean, I was okay because I'd chosen on surgery. But in my entire F1, F2 year, I only had four months of surgery. And I got it because I was a less than full-time trainee. So I had four months spare and they gave me general surgery. Otherwise, I could have gone through the entire foundation year, not having done a surgical job, applying for a surgical job. How does that even make sense? Yes, you get penalized in terms of points, and that is a system that has to change, but that's beyond the scope of this conversation. But your added experience will show in the way you perform in your interviews. It'll show in your portfolio. 
the confidence with which you answer those questions, they will know you're not saying this because somebody has mentored you to say you're saying this from experience. And I'm not saying the points you lose out from portfolio you'll make up in the interview. But at the end of the day, I'd like to believe that they are looking for individuals who have walked the path than the ones that who are thinking of walking the path. And people do worry about how they do in interviews. Doing that extra six months of job on the floor gives you that confidence that doesn't come with courses, that doesn't come with exams, that doesn't come with others' experiences. It's your lived-in experience. And when you say, I would do this, they genuinely think you would do it, as opposed to, you know, saying some fancy answers out of textbooks. And they will see through that. Of course, that has its negatives. But I would highly recommend living the job rather than assuming that this is the job that you want to do. So when you're on the threshold, this is a golden period, the, the, the transition from CT2 to ST3. And I think it will be well rewarded if you took your time in, in uh, choosing the specialty after having lived it. It's interesting you say choosing the specialty. I don't, I, my specialty at the moment is general surgery, and that's what I'm you know, thinking of applying for. I don't think I chose it so much as I just sort of fell into it because it was just the, the jobs that I'd done. It's what I know. So it's, it's, it's interesting you saying that, taking the time to see what else is out there. Annie, thank you. James, thanks for joining us. I mean, you've done it. You've made it. You're, you're in the promised land. You're a consultant. Um, tell us a bit more about your journey. Well, I mean, I'm from Manchester. I did medical school in St. George's, Tooting, so five years there. Foundation training in Middlesbrough. My f- I think my third job as an F1 was in vascular surgery. And um, before the job, everyone doing the job was complaining about it. People were crying about it, saying it was a miserable job. Everyone hated it. The vascular surgeons were bullies. Um, and it was a tough job. You know, it was a tough job, and I didn't want to do surgery at that point. I got into the job, and I thought to myself, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not coming out of this job complaining and crying. Um, I'm going to do the best job I can, mainly to prove the vascular surgeons wrong. Um, and so I did a really, really good job, set a high standard, really looked after the ward patients. And um, I'm not saying they were bullies, but I confronted them. I didn't let them walk over me. And actually, I kind of won them over. And they're the ones who suggested I did basic basic surgical skills. They're the ones who said I should do um, uh, ATLS and MRCS. Um, At that point there, I was initially thinking of doing cardiology, but I was just at a particular junction in my life where I was impressionable. And I thought to myself, well, you know, you've just got to make a decision. I'm either going to do medicine or I'm going to do surgery. And And I was in vascular surgery at the time, so I thought, you know what, to hell, I'm just going to go for it. So I um I changed all my foundation two year jobs from medicine to surgery. So I did vascular surgery again, orthopedics, um, did all of MRCS as a foundation trainee, basic surgical skills, ATLS, and um applied for course surgical training. I went back to Manchester, so I did my course surgical training in Manchester. Um I think I did trauma and orthopedics, general surgery, vascular surgery. And I can't remember what the other one was. I can't remember what the other one was. But um, oh no, I did vascular surgery twice. 
Um, in terms of my experience, of course, surgical training, I can only share with you sort of the things that stick out to me. I think the first one is the ISCP is a game. Nobody likes it, but you've got to play it. I remember turning up to an ARCP once when I was doing trauma and orthopedics, and I wasn't interested in trauma and orthopedics. So I didn't, I didn't work very hard during the job, and I spent a lot of time in the doctor's mess, messing around. And I turned up to my first course surgical ARCP dressed in a suit, waistcoat, leather gloves, looking really, really sharp. And I really thought I was going to do well. And they absolutely destroyed me because I'd not engaged with the ISCP. I didn't take it seriously. And um, that was a big lesson for my surgical career, as in don't look the part, actually be the part. You know, it's all well and good being smart and looking like you're a genius. But if your ISC portfolio is a load of crap, they're going to nail you for it. And I got nailed for it. And in fact, for the rest of my ARCPs, for the rest of my surgical training, I never turned up in a suit and a tie. I turned up in a leather jacket, okay? <laughs> I got told off for that. But the moral of the story is, you know, it's, yeah. it's the man that makes the suit, not the yeah. suit that makes the man, okay? Um, other things that stand out in core surgical training, a lot of it was not operating. A lot of it is spending time A&E clerking patients, closing wounds, being told off that you can't tie a knot, things of that nature. Um, well, that is the job as far as I remember it. You know, you're not actually a surgeon when you're a core trainee. You're learning how to become a surgeon. And um, I think if you can tie a knot, understand the basics of surgery, principles, the practice, understand anatomy, if you're a good trainee with a good work ethic, that's the way in. Everyone wants to chase after the operations and do the operations, but actually – um, it's the foundation you need to establish, first of all. I got quite a hard time off one particular vas- vascular surgeon who is a, is a mentor, an unlikely mentor, but he basically said to me, you know, have a shave, dress smart, polish your shoes, work the patients up for theatre, know your medicine, understand the principles of vascular surgery, be like a wolf and go hunt out surgical operations, um, and he's not a particularly nice guy. I, I don't consider him a friend, but he did do me a lot of massive favours. Um, moving forward now, vascular surgery, Red Star training. So I ended up in Yorkshire. So I've been in York, um, Doncaster, Leeds, Hull, and all over the place, basically. Yeah. Um, and my approach to vascular surgery training is really what that mentor told me. So it's not really about purely wanting to do operating. It's more about being the sort of person who, when you get given the opportunities, you can take advantage of them. And then finally, coming up to consultancy, again, um, I had a pretty hard time in the end of training with some vascular surgeons who were very good trainers, but quite difficult characters. Um, But I never saw it as bullying. I saw that these people are telling me what I don't want to hear, mainly because it's for my long-term benefit. And um, yeah, so that's just a brief summary of my surgical training so far. What do you think has been the biggest challenge making that final jump from being a registrar to consultant because you know to my mind it's this fabled land and you don't really know much other than it is the end of training and you're now the finished product um i don't think it was a big jump and the reason it wasn't a big jump is because i got nailed before i became a consultant so i'm quite fortunate in the fact that i've experienced short-term pain at the right time which has prevented a lot of long-term problems so when I was a foundation trainee, I had a hard time in vascular surgery. I was told to do MRCS, do all that sort of stuff. It was unpleasant at the time, but when I was a core trainee, I didn't have to worry about it. When I was a registrar, 
I got given a hard time, particularly around SD7, about you don't know this, you don't know this, you don't know this, you're not operating at the right level, you're below standard, all this sort of stuff. Do this, read this, do this, read that. And I took it on the chin and um, I got given a lot of advice from experienced people who were like 30 years older than me. And a lot of that went in the brain, stuck in the brain. And by the time I became a consultant, all of that had already been established to let me hit the ground running. Um, but I think as a consultant, I think the big ones for me, and you'll see this in my daily practice, Asad, so clear documentation, okay? Yeah, yeah. A lot of that stuff is what gets you as a consultant, um, sort of governance issues. I think being able to do the bread and butter stuff to a high standard. You know, everyone's interested in doing like type four thoracoabdominal autocanurisms or fancy trauma, but the stuff that you actually need to be doing to a high standard, toe amputations, major amputations, femoral endarterectomies, um, bog standard bypasses. And if you can maintain high quality in the routine stuff, yeah. that's what makes you a good consultant. Other things, I guess, being professional, looking the part, knowing the guidelines. Um, and I think if you if you adhere to those sort of principles, um, you'll be absolutely fine. Yeah. Was it was it what you expected it to be? Um, I think the only the only thing that comes as a surprise is the amount of admin you've got to do. It's um, you, there's two ways of approaching it. Basically, you you take it on the chin every day and sort of keep on top of it, or you ignore it for a few weeks and then confront it four weeks later. My approach is I rather stay afloat. So every time you dictate a clinic letter. You've got to make sure it's all timed out correctly. Whenever you request a scan or someone requests a scan under your name, you've got to follow that up. And they just build up, build up, build up, build up, build up. If any patients complain, you often have to answer stuff like that. But like I say, you think that when you become a consultant, it's all operating, operating, operating. It is, but actually it's what's behind that. Um, and I still think that's part of a consultant role. You know, you are ultimately responsible and, you know, it's your name on the top of the bed. And even though you work in a team and there's everyone else, you know, you still are responsible for quite a lot of stuff. That's the big step up for me. Would you say the administrative stuff was the biggest challenge or were there other big challenges when you finally made the step up? Um, well, the big challenges are probably night shifts on call, okay? Um, running operating lists on your own, that's a yeah. bit of a challenge. But like I say, when I was an SD8 and SD7, people were leaving me on my own anyway yeah. to operate. And a lot of the, the nerves and the anxiety, if you confront it then, when you actually become a consultant, you're fine. Like I remember when I was um, SD8, I was left alone to do femoral endarterectomies. And at the time, you think, you think to yourself, oh, God, I like having someone there to hold my hand. But actually, if you can do it and pull it off, which clearly I did do, then you can move forward and start doing more um, advanced stuff. Um, I mean, I've done some pretty complex operations in the first year as consultant. They all went fine. Um, but even as complex as they are, it's always just bread and butter stuff. You know, if you can do a femoral endarterectomy on your own and you know the principles there, you can pretty much do anything in vascular surgery. If you could do anything differently, what would you have done? What would I have done differently? Um, anything. I don't think I would have done anything differently, but I'll just go back to what um, the other chaps were saying about um, taking time out and doing fellowships and years out and going to Australia. I'm of a different opinion, um, and this is no offence to anyone else, but I think there's always a temptation to think that if you take time out 
um, go on a fellowship, do some extra thing that you'll come back and you'll be more ready. Um, I never really played into that because I think it's a step up irrespective of what you do. And you can take a year out and go somewhere else and learn more skills. But irrespective, when you start off as a consultant, it's going to be a step up. And you can do a fellowship in anything you want to, but it's still going to be just as challenging. So I was always of the attitude that, you know, just just make sure you can do the bread and butter stuff well. Um, understand the basics, the principles, have a good work ethic. And whatever comes through the door, you, you, you're probably going to be able to handle it on your own, or if not, call for help. But um, if, if people want to do fellowships, that's absolutely fine. It just, it just wasn't for me. Um, no, I don't think I would do anything differently. I think the consultant you are is ultimately who's been decided by what decisions you've made when you're a foundation trainee, a core trainee, and a registrar. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the result of the people who mentored me, you know. I, I went along with what they said. I took it on the chin, and um, I am who I am, really. And I think what I would say about mentors is my mentors have always been people who I don't think are particularly pleasant. Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe I'm. Maybe I've got some psychological problems. But usually, mentors are people who tell you what you don't want to hear. You know, and and tell you off. You know, and say you're not good enough, and you don't like it at the time, but it's actually in your best interest. So. I was always reluctant to label anything as bullying. If people ever crossed over that threshold, I would stop it. But I think in surgery, you know, it is quite competitive. There's a lot of egos out there. But on the whole, I think people just want what's best. And I think if people are giving you advice and feedback, you should probably take it on the chin. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a very valid point. You know, you come across trip supervisors and they're not there to be your friends. They're, they're there to help you develop um and if you, that's the point of training isn't it you're not the finished article you need someone to critically appraise you and say you're not doing this right you're not doing this right you, you're okay in this area but you need to develop because otherwise it eliminates the need for training altogether mm-hmm. what do you think is the sort of biggest learning that you do as a consultant on a semi-regular basis like what's been the greatest learning challenge for you now you've officially finished training. Um, I think the learning is not in regard to the actual surgery. It's yeah. not. It's not about operating. I mean, once you once you become a consultant, you can operate. You know, they wouldn't have given you the job if you couldn't operate. You can always get better. And as you become more senior, you'll take on the more advanced and high risk cases. But really, when once you're at that point, it's not really advanced and high risk or, or complex because you're at that point. I think most of the consultancy is more, in my opinion more about working as a team, communication skills, um, remaining humble and maintaining insight. Like for me, for example, I mean, some good feedback I got was, um, again, this is what prepared me for consultancy. It's remember that, um, you know, we all live in glass houses, so be careful about throwing stones. Yeah. You know, you may think you're fantastic. You may be fantastic. But, um, you know, we all have complications and everything goes wrong at some point. If you're going to go pointing your finger at everyone else when they have a complication, yeah. you know, the, the same is going to be done to you. Second thing is, I think, you know, we all need a wingman. Okay. So nine times out of 10, you know, you'll be fine. But every so often you might be in trouble and you'll need someone to bail you out. You know, so if, if your colleagues are ever in trouble, help them out because the chances are when you're in trouble, they'll come and help you out. You know, there's no I in team. Other lessons, I think, maintain that insight that it's a job. It's a job. You know, you're going to work for 30 years, then you're going to retire. 
And um, again, this is further feedback that I got when I was a junior registrar. It's you know you don't want to you don't want to reach the end of your career retired and then feel like um you know that was your life and that's all you're worth. The thing is, a job you do the best you can and then you walk away from it and you feel proud about it. But I think people do forget you quite quickly. Probably, probably. Yeah, no, no. You know, when you walk through the Leeds General Infirmary, there's all like pictures of all these famous surgeries from the 1800s. You know, they did a good job, but they just become a picture on a frame. So um, I think you should always maintain that insight as well. It's like, you know, it's a job, not God's gift to mankind. Golden rules. Um, oh, yeah. Knowing when not to operate, that's, a, that's, that's important. You know, again, training is all about operating. But when you become a consultant, the big one for me is knowing when not to operate. You know, because if you operate on someone, it turns into an absolute disaster. You don't want to look back and think to yourself, why the hell did I do that in the first yeah. place? And um, final one, something I've learned recently and I've spoke to you about, is be careful sending emails, be careful what you say, be careful what you put on social media. I'm not on social media. Yeah. Um, like, like, say this, for example, there's four people in this conversation, but it's been recorded. You don't know who's going to be watching it. When you're a consultant... Yeah. People take what you say very, very seriously, even if you don't take what you say seriously. So um, and these these most of the things that you learn when you become a consultant, you know, the fact that it is actually a serious job <laughs> and you should take yourself seriously. So just as a probably a final point, do you, do you think it was all worth it? All the training that you had, the sort of career progressions you had to finally get to this level? Definitely it is worth it. Yeah. And I think you should always maintain a positive attitude. Because it's very easy to slip into negativity. And the reality of the situation is whatever choices you make in life, you're going to choose a pathway. And whatever pathway you choose, there's going to be positives and there's going to be negatives. And whatever pathway you choose, you're deselecting other pathways. And you can you can look at one career and sort of say to yourself, well, I'm doing this now, but if I'd chosen another career, maybe I'd have a better work-life balance. Maybe I'd have more of a social life, et cetera, et cetera. But the flip side of the equation is if you, if you choose a career where you've got a better work-life balance and you've got a better social life, you may be looking over at this path and thinking, well, I'm not doing all the cool, fancy emergency surgery. I'm not a hero, not that any of us are. You know, so I think once you've made the decision, you should stick with it and keep going and maintain a positive attitude as opposed to making a decision, moving forward, second-guessing yourself, being miserable, and then being positive and then being negative. I think you just... Just go for it. That's why, in answer to your question, yeah, I'm glad I came this way and I intend to keep going further. I think it's really important to hear because, you know, when you're in training, training seems like this long march towards the end and there are all these bumps in the road, hiccups, things that can derail you. And I think it's really inspiring to hear someone who's done it, been there and completed it and say, you know what, it is worth it sticking out. Um, Sometimes you just need to hear more of that. Um, So thank you. Yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it as the top of the mountain because it's not the top of the mountain. It's, it's, it's a marathon, you know? Yeah. And just because you've completed foundation training, you may reach the top of that ladder, but then you're the bottom of core training and then registrar, top and bottom, and then consultant. I'm at the bottom of the consultant ladder. But I don't, really, I don't really see it in that context. I don't really recognize the hierarchy. There's a hierarchy that exists, but I don't really recognize it. It's an individual pathway, and it's really about one, one step in the right direction every day yeah. and not looking into the future because it's like on the motorway you know you look at these cars ahead of you and you think to yourself oh look how far away from me you are and when you get there 
it's just the same. You're just on the same motorway. You're just 20 yeah. minutes ahead. And then there's still people ahead of you. And yeah. when you make it to the end of the motorway, you're retired and you wish you'd go back to the beginning, you know? So yeah. just take, take each day as it comes. Maintain high standard. Do a good job. Be positive about your job. And don't look at what everyone else is doing. That's one thing I will say about training. Yeah. Don't look at what everyone else is doing because whenever you go to like these SD3 induction days, you'll have noticed this yourself. Yeah. You go along and there's like 50 other trainees there. It's like you've, you've, all you've done is closed skin and they've done like 12 laparotomies in one day and a Hartman's procedure. It's like something doesn't add up here, mate. I think you're being dishonest. Yeah, don't yeah. look at what other people are doing. Just do your thing and do a good job. I agree. I think, I think you're spot on with that. Um, I don't think there's that much transparency, and I think it's not it's not a competition, is it? It's just a competition with yourself, doing the best that you think you can do. Yeah, and also if you compete with other people, which I've not done, but I remember there was a guy who wanted to do vascular surgery before I did, and he made a massive big deal out of it. He was doing papers, speaking to these vascular professors, going on vascular training courses, and then um, a couple of years later, I found out that he, he quit. And he's doing GP now. And I'm doing vascular surgery now. You know? So it's almost like if your motivation is competition with other people, what are you going to do when that competition disappears and, you, and you're rowing the boat on your own? Just focus on yourself, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Um, thank you very much for that, James. That was really, really insightful and really refreshing to hear, actually. So uh, thanks for your time. No worries, man. We've heard from surgeons at the beginning, middle and end of training. It's fraught with challenge and adversity, and it's never going to be easy or straightforward, but then now worth having ever is. If you keep your eyes forward and run your own race and don't lose sight of the finish line, it'll probably be worth it in the end.